Good morning, everyone. Today, before we uh, dive into our feast day today, I want to give you a, um, an update on where we're at with our capital campaign. Uh, thank you to all of you. A lot of you have made gifts uh, near the end of the year, and thank you for that. Thank you for committing to that. Uh, <clears throat> right now where we're at, we've still got a long ways to go, and we're starting to hit a critical time in the campaign. And so if you haven't made a gift yet, I'm really kind of begging you to consider that, to really step up and join us. Uh, what we need right now is we need kind of a large proportion of the church uh, to sign up for that commitment for three years. If you sign up for three years for a total of $4,000 over three years, not 12000 but four over three, that will mean we will our goal. If we have everyone do that that's left who hasn't made a commitment, if they sign for $4,000 over three years, we will easily get where we need to be. And think about that. That's $110 a month, $27 a week. Right? That's something that almost all of us can do. And so I really ask you to think about that. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. We've talked a lot about the campaign, and we will not go on forever, I promise. But I wanted to read you a quote. This struck me this morning. N.T. Wright, you've heard me quote before, N.T. Wright is considered broadly, he's considered to be the top scripture scholar in the world. And he says this, he says, the shoulder-shrugging functionalism of post-war, post-war architecture, coupled with a passivity born of decades of television, has meant that for many people the world appears to offer little but bleak and urban landscapes on the one hand, and tawdry entertainment on the other. I meant to look up the word tawdry. I don't know what it means. Someone can tell me after Mass. I know it's bad. Um, and here's the key line. He says, When people cease to be surrounded by beauty, they cease to hope. When people cease to be surrounded by beauty, they cease to hope. Ultimately, the reason we're, we're renovating our building, we, you all know we have to do the uh, mechanical fixes. We have about $1.5 million of mechanical fixes to the church. Why does beauty matter? It's because of how you felt when we were singing the Gloria. When the violin's playing and it touches your heart, it touches something deep inside of you that God put there that reminds you that you are more than a functionary or just a set of cells. Beauty in a unique way reminds men and women that they are mysterious and they're created for God. And when we don't have beauty, which N.T. Wright would say, and I would agree with him, that after World War II, Western civilization kind of put beauty on the shelf. When there is no beauty, we don't, we're not in touch with our souls. That's why this matters. And of course, there are more things than just architecture, but architecture matters. It's not merely a nice add-on. So I ask you to pray about that. I ask you to be a part of this, right? The reason we're doing this is primarily to evangelize our culture. 
that the men and women who do nothing but go to work and try to get ahead and save money and survive another day, that when they come into this building, they'll encounter truth and goodness and beauty. And they'll say, you know what? There's more to my life than this. There must be a God. Okay, that's sermon number one. How about, was that okay? All right. Sermon number two. I love doing two sermons. <laughs> Some of you have been there. If you haven't, you need to go. If you go to Washington, D.C., the kind of mother church of the United States is in Washington, D.C. It's called the Cathedral Basilica of the Immaculate Conception. And it's the mother church of the United States. And it's stunning. It's absolutely beautiful. It's massive. I think it's the largest church in North America. And uh, it really is quite stunning. But it has my least favorite, maybe not my least favorite, one of my least favorite pieces of artwork that I've ever seen in a church as well. And so they didn't ask me when they built it. (laughs) But what they have is if you go there, in the main church, there's this stunning central altar. And right above that, there's this beautiful dome and has a mosaic, right? A mosaic is a bunch of tiny pieces of tile or glass that are put together to make an image. And the image in this mosaic is of Christ. And Jesus in that image looks like a Greek god. Uh, He has blonde hair. He has blonde hair and blue eyes, which most Jews tend not to. Um, But he is absolutely ripped. (laughs) I mean, the pecs on Jesus, I'm like, man. (laughs) And he's kind of flexing. like he's, He's like blessing like this, but it's like... It's uh, I can say lots, but I'll stop. And there's actually fire coming from his halo, like around his head. There's three in the shape of a cross. There's flames coming out of his his head, and that's not just because it looks cool. It's actually because the Bible tells us that God is an all-consuming fire, and in the Old Testament, when God appears, He tends to appear with fire. Now, it's not my favorite image, but you kind of walk up to that image of Jesus, and there's something really true about it. And it's something that we forget because we're so used to seeing Jesus like that. We're used to seeing him weak and dying in a shameful way. But the point that the, the cathedral is making and the artist who made that mosaic is making is that Jesus has... Part of his identity is that he is the all-powerful, eternal word of God. We in in the United States can become overly familiar with the idea of God. God is all-powerful. He is the one who created the stars. He is the one who brilliantly designed your mind and your brain and your eyeball, which evolutionary scientists, I understand, still can't understand how the eye developed evolutionarily. He is beyond everything. And that mosaic is trying to remind us, if you go there, that's who Jesus is. 
St. Augustine says this in his Confessions. And I love this line. He says, early on in the Confessions, he's talking about the mystery of God's power and beauty and knowledge and goodness. And he says, you, my God, are supreme, utmost in goodness, mightiest and all-powerful, most merciful and most just. You are the most hidden from us and yet the most present among us, the most beautiful and yet the most strong, ever enduring and yet we cannot comprehend you. You are unchangeable, and yet you change all things. You are never new, never old, and yet all things have new life from you. You are the unseen power that brings decline upon the proud. You are ever active, yet always at rest. You are my God, my life, my holy delight. But is this enough to say of you? Can any man say enough when he speaks of you? The main point I want to propose to you, brothers and sisters, today is that human beings are made to worship. That's why we were created. The Genesis account builds to that, by the way. That when the world's right, when everything is how it should be, it naturally leads to worship. And think about it, right? When everything goes well in your life, you know when you have those unexpected times when you never could have dreamed that something could go so well? And all of a sudden there's this surprise and, and life is good and you are loved, and there's meaning and purpose and truth and beauty. The natural response to that is to praise God. It's, an, it's, it's just more than natural to just worship God. That's where Chesterton says the worst moment for an atheist is when he's grateful in that moment because he has no one to be grateful to. Uh, and I think there's something really beautiful, really profound about the way he says that. Man was made to worship. You were created to worship. And what the Bible teaches us is that if you don't worship God, you will worship something else. It is inevitable. Everyone will worship something. And if you don't worship God, what usually happens is you will end up worshiping yourself. There's another line in T. Wright. He has this great one. The Book of Wisdom talks a lot about this. But N.T. Wright sums it up. He says, one of the primary laws of human life is that you become like the thing you worship. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people, not as people, but as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers, rather than human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. You're going to worship something. And if you don't worship God, 
usually it's going to fall upon yourself. And so why are we talking about this today? What does this have to do with our readings? Today is the Feast of Epiphany. And what happens, let me read this to you in the Epiphany. If you didn't hear this, in Matthew chapter 2, right, the wise men come and they travel from a distant land and they come all the way and then they come to Bethlehem following the star and it says this, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The Greek there is really interesting. It repeats the word for joy twice and then adds megalane to add to put great to it. It's really emphatic. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. That's what it means to be a Christian. They fell down and they worshipped him. And the good news say what Epiphany is all about, by the way, Epiphany is that the world found something, and not just Israel, Right, at the birth of Christ, we kind of celebrate that Israel's God and Messiah has finally come. But Epiphany is about how that God and Messiah was not just for Israel. He's for everyone. Doesn't the world need that today? Right, today, the world believes that there isn't a truth that's big enough for all of us. Right, there, there's little partial truths. There's your little partial truth and there's mine. And you know, there's different kind of flavors that all of us can choose which one we want. Today's feast celebrates that there is a truth, there is a God who is big enough for all the nations. Our responsorial psalm today said that. If you heard that when we sang, oh God, every nation will worship you. Every nation. So the wise men come and they fall on their knees. And here's my point. Man's made to worship and the normal thing we worship is strength and power and truth and, and someone who's really strong. I was trying to think about like a good example for this. But you, haven't you met people that you almost like want to worship? Usually it's like celebrities. But uh, guys, I want to appeal to like, the men for a minute. Like, you know when you, we all kind of have those like man crushes, right? I have one, don't tell him, but I have one on our architect. Um, <laughs> he went to Harvard for his undergrad. He uh, went to Catholic University of America for his master's. He's just like brilliant. He's like this perfect architect. He's like, hey, Father Brian, I was reading Aristotle last week. I'm like, you are awesome. <laughs> like, if you were actually athletic, I might just worship you, but you're not. So, hopefully he doesn't listen to Lord's homilies online. The world was always, and in the Greek world, what always happened, the world was looking for something to worship. And, and the story of how the world became Christian, if you study history, it's fascinating. The world was pagan and had all these gods and Zeus and Apollo and all these different kind of uh, gods and goddesses. And by the time Christ comes on the scene, the world was really beginning to understand that these things were just fables. And they were looking for something. Is there anything out there to worship? Is there something that is true? about this beautiful, powerful, mysterious life and world we live in. And the world found an answer to that at the manger. <laughs> and normally what we worship, and I think rightly, is power and like awesomeness and that image of Jesus at the basilica where he's just like ripped 
right? We were impressed by these things. What Christianity did in Acts 17, Paul's preaching with his companions, and there's a riot, and the people of the city, they accuse them, and they say, this Jesus whom they're talking about has turned the world upside down. And that's what I want to just reflect with you about today. Here's the amazing thing. So the, the wise men come, and they, they, it says they worshiped him. The Greek word is proskuneo, and it literally means to bend your knee. What do you bend your knee to? All of us need that. Brothers and sisters, if, if there's not something in your life that is f- so beautiful, so much above you, you'll end up worshiping yourself. And the good news of Epiphany is that the world found a place to bend its knee. That's the mystery of Epiphany. And how does, how does Jesus turn the world upside down? Well, the most beautiful thing, of course, today is that this all-powerful God who through his word created galaxies and universes, who designed all the intricacies of the human body, the beautiful and intricate process of evolution, this God stands behind all of that. And the strong one has made himself weak. The strong has made himself weak. And the beautiful thing, this is where Christianity changed the world. A lot of religious historians will tell you that one of the virtues that we celebrate is humility. Before the coming of Christ in Roman and Greek culture, humility was not seen as a virtue, it was seen as weakness. But Christ changed all that. Because the God that we bend our knees before was strong but made himself weak. Balthazar has this beautiful scene in one of his books. This is how you get to know Balthazar. You don't have to read him. I'll just tell you what he says. Balthazar in Heart of the World, he talks about how in his own life, he was tempted to worship philosophy because it was so pure and it was so majestic and strong and free of any weakness or corruption. And he, he talks about how his heart went after it. And there's this beautiful scene. It's one of my favorite things I've ever read, read in my life. And he says, at just the right moment when I was going to worship these ideas and this perfection, at just the right moment, I remembered your heart, Lord. And he says, and I saw you sitting by the whore's well. And I remember that you did not despise our weaknesses, but that you loved us. That is something worth bending your knee to. And so today is Epiphany, brothers and sisters. It is a, you and I had to have the confidence today that the God we worship is not just our preference He's not just, you know, I like Catholicism, you like Buddhism, and you like yourself. Great, you know, (laughs) good luck with that. C.S. Lewis, by the way, says, 
someone asked him once what the surest way to happiness was or the best religion to make you happy, and he said self-worship. <laughs> you know, sounds pretty good to me. He said the only problem is it's just a lie. Epiphany is that there is a God. There's a God that all the world belongs to. He is a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, who commands things and by his word they are created. And that same God loved us so much that the strong God made himself weak. I want to leave you with this. My favorite image today, in our first reading from Isaiah, it prophesies the coming of the wise men. And it says they will bring gold and frankincense. And it also talks about camels. That's why we have camels in our nativity scenes. It's not from Matthew. It's from Isaiah in the Old Testament. But it talks about these wise men, and it says they will bring gold and frankincense. But it doesn't say myrrh. Myrrh is the prophecy of Jesus' death. Myrrh is what he will be embalmed with after he's crucified. Because the world loves strength and power. And it looks to the Messiah is going to come and our God's going to save us and he'll be awesome and strong and amazing. But in the gospel, Jesus goes beyond that and the strong one comes to die.